and I, I mean, I love the scene where they go swimming too. It's when the Iron Giant goes for the cannonball, and Dean's reading the the newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> Dean just puts the newspaper back it's, up. As it's if a that's perfect a cut field. right there because you get like the wide shot of like the water spouting up in the air, and then the wave starting to come up, and then it cuts right to Dean with his newspaper in front of his face, and there's just a wave like three times taller than him about to like wash him out, yeah, and then another great line wave. delivery of like he gets washed out into yep. the road. Hey, hey, buddy, yeah, you're in the yeah. road, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, ah, okay. <laughs> drives on. All right. Funny. Welcome back to the Great American Movie Review, where we review great American movies. My name is Kyle. And I'm Micaiah. This is a Movie of the Week-style podcast where we take turns picking films and we talk about them. This week, I have selected the 1999 animated film, The Iron Giant. The Iron Giant is about a boy who finds and befriends a giant alien robot that crash lands in small-town America in 1957. The film is the first feature of director Brad Bird, who would later go on to make films such as The Incredibles, Ratatouille, and Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, among others. While The Iron Giant is a widely beloved film by those who have seen it, the film was a financial disaster, only making, only taking in $23 million on a $70 million budget. Which I, I find surprising because there's there's a list of reasons why it it was oh, a disaster. Yeah. Mar- marketing is one of them. A huge it also, one. It also seemed just derivative for for something at the time and also while i i do find the uh animation to be charming in a way i could see in a trailer a lot of people thinking that the animation is not good even for the time i mean have you seen those trailers i i have not seen those trailers they're awful (laughs) if you're just yeah if you're just taking some of the uh some of the things out of context with without even like telling what the story is going to be about i can i can absolutely see how somebody would not want to watch it yeah so uh for network i watched the director's commentary this one i watched on the special features for the blu-ray there was a documentary that was an hour long about the making of the iron giant that i watched which is really interesting and gives a lot of insight into the development and then the eventual kind of marketing failure of the movie that uh kind of led to where it ended up unfortunately not really making the impact that i think it could have and a lot of that i think is really due to the fact that warner brothers did not really have a good hold on what they wanted to do with animation in general because before this you had disney basically dominated animation from the 20s through the 80s you know the only other real animation studio that i can think of is um why can I not think of the name of the guy? So the it's the American Tale. What's his name? Don Bluth. The Don Bluth animation. Yeah, Don Bluth was yeah. the only real competition to Disney throughout Secret the Secret of Nim, right? At least, yeah, Secret of Nim, uh, Land Before Time, yeah, um, an American Tale. There were so many. Those are just some well, obviously, ones. obviously, obviously, DreamWorks wasn't in full force until like Shrek and no. early two thousands, but they did have uh, Prince of Persia, no. You mean the Prince of Egypt? 
Prince of Egypt. That's it. Not Prince of Persia. The Sands yeah. of Time. Yep. Yeah. That movie. Yeah. Wow. Like uh, DreamWorks was, I mean, all of the other studios were really trying to get in on animation at this point in time because you had the Especially Disney. 2D. Right. Because you... only Pixar did uh, CGI. Right. Because, well, starting in the late 80s with like The Little Mermaid, you got the start of the Disney Renaissance where these movies were making hand over fist, you know, and yeah. really successful. Cause, and then you also had the first ever Best Animated Picture nomination for Beauty and the Beast. And you had just a lot going on. The Lion King came out in 94. Then you had Toy Story coming out in 95. So studios were... They also they also weren't just box office hits. They were some of the best movies to have been made. Like Yeah, um, they're great films. Like The Lion King. Yeah, like The Lion King, like Beauty and the Beast, like Aladdin. Yep. Yeah, and even the other... So the other studios were all just trying to figure out what they were even trying to do with this. And... Warner Brothers wasn't having a lot of success with it, and unfortunately, I can't think of another Warner Brothers animation. There were a few. Movie. There was some like fantasy one, something Camelot. I don't remember, but none of them did very well. It's actually kind of interesting when you look at when you think about how many animated movies come out every year right now. It's just so many. It's like a glut of them that you just can't get away from them. But you look back at 1999 at like the animated movies that came out in 1999, and there are like maybe five you've heard of and unless yeah. you're like a really big animation fan because you have the iron giant obviously tarzan somebody's mowing their mowing the lawn outside we might have to wait a couple minutes that's okay no it's uh it's asmr <laughs> well it's just annoying it's, it's long now <laughs> <laughs> well either way in 1999 you had the iron giant you had the big competition from disney being tarzan and then you had South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. And those were kind of... Hey, blame Canada on that one. Yeah, blame Canada. <laughs> and then it goes from there, it just like kind of dwindles out very fast. Like the kind of animated movies that... You have some Japanese films that probably didn't even get distribution in the US. And like some Ghibli stuff. I think one of the... like My, my neighbors, the Yamadas, or one of those came out around that in that year but i don't even think it yeah. got a u.s release then so it's just kind of like most of the u.s and theatrical animation stuff was <laughs> there just wasn't a lot of it so yeah it is kind of interesting to look back at that period of time in animation it's also weird too because you had a lot of experimentation with cg and hand-drawn combined you see that in all of the disney movies starting at beauty and the beast actually going into especially with like tarzan and you see that in the iron giant as well but i think as far as the iron giant goes specifically though just as its own kind of movie despite its failings like i said this is a movie that is just absolutely beloved by everybody who's seen it really i don't really know anybody who just saw this movie and was like yeah it's okay it's good you know, like everybody that I know that has seen this movie is like, it's incredible. And they try to show everybody else this movie because it is. It's so good. And unfortunately, so I, I, I will say I do like this movie quite a bit, actually. Um, but as a kid, it I was very mostly apathetic towards it. I recognized it was a it was a good movie, but I just it it had no I had no passion for it, really. So, yeah. Interestingly for me as well. Uh, I actually, I was scared of everything as a kid, and the scene where he's in the woods looking for the Iron Giant, and he mm -hmm. finds him, the Iron Giant gets electrocuted on, like, the power grid and stuff. 
that scene terrified me so much as a kid that I never watched the movie past that you that never point. watched it again. So I only really discovered. Oh, you only you only watched like the first little. Yeah. Bit. So I only really discovered wow. my love for this movie as an adult watching it. It was only wow. I think it was uh, my first year of college that I kind of revisited it. And I was like, this is incredible. I love this movie. And it was only as an adult that I actually got to establish that love of that movie. So yeah. it's just kind of, yeah, it's an interesting thing. As a kid, it didn't grab me because I was too scared of it, <laughs> unfortunately. But yeah, it's a, I mean, it's just a wonderful piece of animation. And Brad Bird as a director for animation, he is kind of, in far as filmmakers in general, I'm a huge animation fan. I be truly do believe animation to be specifically hand-drawn animation to be like the truest form of filmmaking. It is pure creation and it is literal m images. You are yeah. not like having the illusion of images brought about by a camera recording something. It's literal images that are yeah, played next to each it's other. It's pure art right. and it's in its truest form because you're, you're combining two different kinds of art together. Yes to form to form a project so it's almost the the purest essence of what motion pictures are and for that animation is very feels very personal to me because of how much movies mean to me and this movie is able the brad bird as a director as a filmmaker i'm really one i'm into the things that he's into because he has this kind of retro sensibility here one second to this and like the incredibles yeah the, the lawnmower behind me is just so loud I'm just going to wait a minute. I mean, I can bring up the fact that, so Brad Bird definitely has two of my favorite Pixar movies under his belt. Actually, probably my one and two being Ratatouille and The Incredibles, um, which is no small thing compared to like, there's, there's Wally, which is, is recognized sometimes as the best. Uh, I'd, I'd still put The Incredibles and Ratatouille above it, though, even though it is a very close third. There's Toy Story 2, Toy Story 1, Toy Story 3, uh, Up. There's so many good Pixar movies to choose from. And the fact that I think he's got two of the most important and most respected, I think it says something. Yeah, I think Brad Bird's sensibilities are just so interesting to me because he's got that old school kind of um like the very much the tomorrowland style idea of that 1950s futuristic and he brings that even yeah. into something like the incredibles which is set in this weird not real time period of it has those 1950s things with some modern technologies and you see that definitely in the iron giant literally being set in the 50s and I don't know if you watched the signature edition or you watched the original theatrical version, but the signature edition, they're the same length. So it's more of alternate scenes rather than... I think I just watched the theatrical okay. version. The signature, so in the theatrical version, there's like a serial commercial that plays on the TV because Brad Bird wanted to get the Tomorrow, like rights to use Tomorrowland specifically, but Disney didn't give him the rights. Is that is that when Dean is uh, is asleep and then wakes up? to the prophecy of the iron giant like destroying the yeah world. that's that's also that, an alternate that that's an alternate thing in the movie as well but in the signature edition you get to see the actual iron giant like army destroying something you know like on another planet 
but in the so so that's on both or that's on just that's the theatrical on, or that's confused. there's there's some embellishment there's some differences there with those scenes like i said it's all very because i'm gonna be honest maybe because i haven't seen this movie in probably the better part of 20 years i don't remember that scene right. at all right it's yeah that's <laughs> there's a couple of things in there but there's also er, earlier in the movie i think when the hand is crawling around i think the house you see a commercial on the tv and it's like a serial commercial from the 50s oh probably i, I probably yeah, missed that but when I was this watching it. but in the signature edition he does have the Tomorrowland commercial on there and it like zooms in on the tv and everything it's all very minor oh then i stuff but just stuff that he originally yeah wanted. Yeah, so I think I watched the theatrical because I probably would have recognized something right, like that. Right, right. And yeah, and I just love that kind of sensibility that he brings to his films and filmmaking because I think he also is one of the few examples of a animation director jumping into live action and doing a great job with it with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. He did direct the movie Tomorrowland for Disney, which I think that that one got kind of chewed up in the Disney machine because there are things I, I like that movie more than a lot of people do, but it's not great. And I have seen neither of those movies, so I'm going to have to. Take yeah, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol is maybe the most fun of that. And it really captures his sensibilities and his filmmaking style in a movie that is part of a bigger franchise, which is just kind of cool to see that translate to a live action setting like that. But Brad Bird is despite his limited filmography because he's an animation director and these movies take years and years to make that he despite his limited yeah. or if you're miyazaki somehow just like <laughs> just keep churning it out when you're oh, yeah, 80 years old yeah i don't know how he does it but <laughs> <laughs> well he said he was going to retire after i think like something. the wind rises I, I thought not only that i th i thought this might be wrong, but I thought he said he was going to retire after something like Princess Mononoke. Oh, he's I think he said he's gonna retire like or in three the times. in the nineties. Yeah, he he's he's said basically his entire filming career that he's going and to that retire. Just never has. He won't retire. He is the Michael Jordan yeah. of animation. Well now his most recent movies, it's called uh How Do You Live or something like that. I think they retitled it in the US, but they're not releasing any trailers for it. Literally just a poster. It's already released in Japan. So like oh, yeah has? but that's because it has Shoot. no marketing behind it like just as an intentional thing it's just a poster that's like a crane so i don't understand <laughs> <laughs> like, like imagine having that kind of industry clout though you know <laughs> like yeah you can literally do whatever you want oh i don't want to release a trailer i just want a poster and that's it and this movie is going to be a hit most likely yes <laughs> you know <laughs> But yeah, back to, yeah, Brad Bird ends up kind of becoming one of my favorite filmmakers because I just, he just has such a great sensibility. And this movie, something that he really understands in his films is just emotionality through the images themselves. And he has a great sense of energy in them as well and the, the way that they're put together and edited. And watching that behind the scenes thing you really get to see what an animation director does because it's it's really fascinating because you don't have sets you have actors but only after most of it's already done you know and you're just directing them to you know voice the characters so it's not like right. you're doing it on location everything is just created and you're just trying to guide tons of artists through making a cohesive vision and so that's just it's just such like a monumental kind of task to even take that on especially when this movie so it has a 70 million dollar budget which might sound high because i don't think people fully understand 
not yeah. for animation, but uh, definitely for the time, I could see well, that being. But people that for the time, it definitely for a first feature. For film, a first feature I film, yes, but for the time and animation for context, Tarzan cost one hundred thirty million dollars to make in the same year. So it that's true. But it that, had half the budget. Uh, this movie had half the budget, and it only had. But Disney at that time uh, was a known commodity. Right. So it makes sense with, with that kind right. of budget. So, I mean, but animation costs a lot more than people think because you have so many different animators who are all working on it and working on individual scenes. And you have to spread these resources out across many years because a film project you can shoot over the course of a few months. An animated film you're making over the course of, if it's like a big studio animated film, like five years. In the case of this one, they had half the amount of time. They only had two and a half years to make it. Which is incredible that this movie's as good as it is with that, and I think it speaks to Brad Bird's like talent and focus as a director. But yeah, I think that in the Iron Giant, it's really interesting because first of all, it doesn't try to be cutesy at all. It just comes across very like naturalistic. I feel like the thing that strikes me every time I watch this, and the thing that makes it feel fresh to me whenever I watch it, is that it all. The, the writing and then the performances too just all feel very natural and even though it's this animated thing which is done down to a t because it has to be it just it just all breathes so much life into this story yeah some of the uh the voice actor for hogarth for the first half was kind of uh pretty bland to me very mm. It is a it is a child voice right. actor, of course, so you have to take that into account. But the second half is the change is night and day. And I will note that uh, I knew Jennifer Aniston was, and I forgot her first name, but Hogarth's yeah. mother. And I am very surprised how she does. This is voice my favorite of... Jennifer Aniston performance, which is like. Yeah kind of an odd thing to say because it is just a vocal performance but like i'm not a huge friends fan you know i didn't watch all of these and this was smack dab like in the middle right. of the popularity of right of friends and five years into it yeah. five years before it ended. and i didn't so, really yeah. watch any of the rom-coms or things they did she did i've seen some of the comedies but she's usually playing up a kind of version of her friend's character this one feels really different yeah basically like 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 we are the millers she's right basically playing a typecast of of what she would play yeah and so this one, it feels really different and her voice like lends a lot to the character. And I think it was a really smart casting decision. Annie. Same thing with Annie. Harry Connick Jr. as Dean is like not, it's yeah, a little left he, field, but it works really well. Don't take this the wrong way, but some of his, uh, some of his scenes, he just sounds like white Chris Rock to me. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know what you but... mean by that, but okay. <laughs> no, Chris Rock has a very, he has a very distinct yeah. voice. Like if you hear Chris Rock, he he sounds a lot like Chris Rock okay. to me. I don't know how. That's interesting. And Vin Diesel, he sounds exactly like Vin Diesel to me. Vin it's Diesel so sounds weird. like Vin Diesel. Wow, that's crazy. Yes, he does. Actually, in this movie, <laughs> he might sound the least like Vin Diesel. <laughs> yeah, because there, there's so much like yeah like a vocal the roboticization like background sound. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like yeah, they do a good job of blending it. <laughs> <laughs> They they basically asked him to right. do that, and then they changed it. Right. It's interesting in the behind the scenes. He's wearing those stupid little glasses he wears during the Fast and Furious movies. Like he's just <laughs> in the sound booth, but he's in those glasses. It's just funny. Well, he had the same he had the same voice coach uh, in 
Guardians of the Galaxy that I did here, so maybe he was still wearing the glasses for, Let's for hope Guardians so. of the Galaxy. I, I hope as well. he always has those glasses. Let's hope so. Where, where's the behind the scenes of Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah. Show me. But it. the movie right at the beginning it sets up that it's set it's actually set in the fifties, which I think, you know, that influences a lot of kind of the approach and the storytelling for, you know, the sake of the movie. I can't articulate what I'm saying, but Well, it starts it, it starts with those fifties right. sensibilities. So it starts in a fifties mm-hmm. style diner. Um and well, it, it doesn't start there. It starts after after uh, the fisherman has the encounter with the Iron Giant. It starts in the 50s-style diner, and the fisherman is actually... He's trying to communicate what he saw, and everyone just thinks he's a kook. Right. And so Dean, who's basically the uh, the neighborhood beatnik, uh, stands up for him because, I I mean, that's that's kind of what uh, the younger generation did. Which I love that characterization was for like, Dean. Like, it just makes Dean immediately endearing. Yeah. Just... Yeah, he's he's definitely empathetic towards uh that the that kind balls. of person probably. Yeah, because especially I mean this is set in Maine, Maine in the 50s. Kind of a rural right. town. Yeah, I could imagine there's only a handful No, he's of like if he doesn't stand up for around him, who there. is. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just it really is a good introduction to the Dean character with that little moment, which once again goes into kind of the naturalistic feeling of the whole movie where that's just kind of like a background conversation that's happening and they're just kind of in a diner environment. It just all feels very naturalistic despite being an animated film. And it's definitely, it's definitely one of those small towns where everybody knows everybody. There's probably like a thousand people who live in this town max. Yeah. And, and so this is where birds kind of sensibilities kind of come into for his very much fifties inspiration uh, that he always infuses into his movies and I like that they even have like the line that the old guy says. He goes, "It came from outer space," which is just such like a fifties, just like you slap that yeah. on your movie, like the thing from another world and stuff like that. You know, which I love fifties sci-fi movies, and like I just watched the nineteen fifty-three War of the Worlds movie, and this movie clearly takes a little bit from that too, with like the way that the arms are on the Iron Giant when he's like in the whole like attack form and yeah stuff like that there's like it's a little bit like the uh the day the earth stood still as well which yeah. i believe is 51 yeah and there's like the scene where he's she's like no scary movies and he goes home and he's obviously watching a immediately scary, movie scary immediately. movies and <laughs> and like infusing his twinkie with like more whipped cream which man yeah it, that's, it reminded, that's certainly a way to get diabetes yeah it's like the kind of movie like um the woman without a brain or I forgot what the movie's name is, but I love the, I love the voice acting <laughs> the kind of, yeah. from the man. He's like, Oh darn, I left my keys. <laughs> I know. Even the attention to detail though, in that animation and how it's edited is so true mm-hmm. to like 50 sensibilities. It's just like, that's the attention to detail stuff that I think this movie just really nails. No. And, and yeah, the way it's edited so that as he's running up the stairs to, uh, investigate the sound of the giant eating his an- eating the antenna. It's still going on, and so it 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 shows like or the the TV show says or the movie says like what is that along with like Hogarth and everything right. like that. All the emotions are similar, and then the second that something happens on the on the TV, Hogarth's like ah screw the noise, I'm just gonna go watch the movie. 
Yeah, which something that this movie does beautifully with in, in regards to its images with how they do the animation is I think in capturing kind of a filmic quality they have very dynamic lighting with a, there's a lot of directional yeah. lighting in this movie with flashlights with the TV with the Iron Giant itself and electricity and stuff like that. There's a, just so much of that and it's it's so well infused into the scenes and the emotionality of it. And that's a good example of that because you get the TV light shining on him and he's going through the dark house and all that. And and it shows with uh, the giant's eyes as well because the only facial like movements that he can do are his jaw and his eyes. So he needs to make them as emotional as possible. Yeah. So an interesting thing about the development of this movie is that apparently, so they had brad bird at warner brothers he got fired from disney for disagreeing with certain things that they were doing and so then he he ended up going over to warner brothers and he was working on a project that then got scrapped but they liked what he was doing with it even though it got scrapped and so they tried to get him on to do this adaptation of the iron man the book by i don't remember the author's name but ted hughes ted hughes which is when did that come out like uh 63 i think definitely the 60s yeah it was after it was after the uh death of his wife sylvia plath right which that that book is dealing with grief a lot but what they were making that as was um an animated musical oh no and that's what it was originally going to be and then apparently brad bird came and so this is where it ties right in. Tap, I don't think tap dancing giant would have would have come no, across on it, screen better than this. And <laughs> the test footage for it looks atrocious too. Like oh, it, it no. looks even worse than you would think. It looks like straight to DVD garbage, like knockoff version of what this movie. Well, ended Disney up being. <laughs> is known for that as well. They, <laughs> yeah, they're known for their good theatrical, but they are also really, really well known for their garbage that they just yeah. put out straight to DVD. So and beyond brand. Yeah, I mean, that was back in the Eisner days of Disney. I think it was Eisner. I don't remember. but It was probably Eisner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's what it was originally going to be until Brad Bird got a hold of it. And so at this time in his life, the documentary goes into this where he, he his sister was murdered by her spouse through gun violence. And after a long period of depression and everything, and then feeling a connection to that book, the, the Iron Man, and the kind of the yeah. loss that that book kind of represents of somebody kind of pulling themselves back together, he took that and kind of infused that sensibility along with his other things that he likes to bring to his movies and with like the, the 50s kind of aesthetic. And infuse that to make this version of the story more personal to himself which i think works extremely well because you do get that thematic through line that gets introduced in the scene with the deer which is a beautiful scene and apparently i think they were saying it's one of like the very first scenes that they really had to figure out and that's once again a great example of the lighting because you get the iron giant's hand coming out of the shadow to like look at this deer which he's just curious about and then you immediately get it going straight over to the deer runs off into the woods and then you hear a gunshot and then they go and find the deer and it's just been shot and the iron giant doesn't know how to process death it's just poking the deer just trying to see hogarth is trying to explain to him that death and then you get the great scene after that where he's like he's like guns kill and 
then which introduces that idea obviously but then later you get him talking about guns kill or killing is wrong but death isn't you know and kind of the conversation of a soul which is just so rich like such like a great thing to have be kind of the emotional hook of this movie because apparently brad bird's pitch was to make a movie about what if a gun had a soul so i think i think that scene really kind of captures the core emotion of the movie and like i said the the beauty and just the image i get kind of emotional just seeing that image of the iron giant reaching out to touch the deer because it's there's just such a warmth in what they're presenting and how they go about it it's just it's just really great yeah um only thing i can add to that is the is the callback at the end when hogarth is trying to he he's not even trying to stop stop him necessarily from being what he is he's just telling him to choose you don't have to be a gun guns kill killing isn't right you don't have to be a gun you can choose just choose yeah. essentially is the i'm paraphrasing but yeah but he's just trying to get through to him because by then uh the giant goes full rogue and uh i like the the attention to detail that of course the the dent on his head is likely what's stopping him right. from his original programming and the second that he thinks hogarth is dead is when the dent goes back and his original programming takes over. Right. But everything that he's learned is not gone. Right. So and I like I like yeah, that. Yeah, and he acts out of self-defense in the movie from when he only starts to transform into the robotic so terror whenever in, guns point Interesting around. thought about that. Uh, obviously, it's heavily supported, but it's just a theory, and it's my theory, uh, is that they the giants get sent to a world and it's not necessarily for like world destruction. It's just that every single time they get sent to a world with life on it, or at least intelligent life, the intelligent life always fights back leading to the self-defense that the giant shows. That's, that's my theory because I absolutely believe if something like that landed here, we would absolutely try to destroy it as our Mm. first, like as our first method. Interesting. I do believe, and 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 Kent Mansley, uh, one of my favorite characters oh, in fiction, um, <laughs> even even does the entire like uh, Batman versus Superman. Uh, if if he even is a one percent hostile, we have to take that as an absolute certainty. <laughs> right. <laughs> he essentially paraphrases that, which man, <laughs> uh, see, yeah, the Kent Mansley character. See Zach, See Zach, Brad can do it a lot better than you. Honestly, though, the Kent Mansley character is such a good just antagonist in this movie because I mean the real antagonist is kind of circumstance, but the Kent Mansley character just being so obnoxious. And this is like you get the scene where he knocks on their door originally, just shuts the door right in his face, <laughs> and eventually him moving Kent in. Mansley, I work for the government. Yeah, eventually him moving into their spare room, which once again is so well set up just with details because you just see yep. the sign in their window. They don't really address it, but then later she's like, "Somebody finally is renting our room," and it's him. Yep. You just get the montage of him just like being keeping too close of an eye on him. He's calling him slugger <laughs> chief. <laughs> Hey, how how big is the giant cowboy? <laughs> right, it <laughs> <Just> keeps coming. <laughs> uh, which, yeah, that's Kent Mansley. He's just the worst. Which it's it's funny too because it's um, I forgot the actor's name. 
Christopher Mc. Okay, so Christopher yes. McDonald. I didn't look this up before I yeah. watched it, but for some reason, uh, after I watched this movie, I watched Happy Gilmore, and I have no idea why <laughs> oh, really? until I until I remembered. Wait, wait a second. Wait a second. That's Shooter McGann. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah, he's just yeah. good at playing this kind of character, and it, it works. He's definitely typecast, but man, yeah. is he good! It was it was smart casting for this kind of movie. It is smart it casting because apparently they and... wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger. The studio did to play the Kent Manza <laughs> character, which is absurd. How big is the robot cowboy? <laughs> it's an absurd. It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't hit as well. No, it's, it's a, that would have been a horrible choice. So I'm glad that the, the... <laughs> fire the missile now. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, they also apparently wanted john travolta for the dean character oh no which i mean that one wouldn't have been as bad as arnold schwarzenegger's cat, well but well if this was a musical maybe oh man yeah but <laughs> this was this was after the change in direction so now tell me more tell me more like did he eat my art <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's also so funny when Mansley's like dismissing the guy in the woods, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm here because big prob big things happen in big places, and this is a small he, place." And then he gets in his car and he looks over, and, and there's a bite. And out there's of a it. gigantic bite. And out then of he gets it, yeah. out of his car, turns around, runs to the other guy, and then you see the Iron Giant's hand just coming to grab the car. It's really <laughs> funny. <laughs> he turns around, it's gone. Which which uh, Christopher McDonald absolutely plays the whole oh my god kind of <laughs> right? like. <laughs> he he plays that so well and actually oddly enough small tangent and happy gilmore when he meets uh when he meets that giant and he has to play it off frankenstein's freaking foot <laughs> well that's good for happy gilmore oh my god <laughs> it's so good um and i don't know why but that reminds me of uh two good lines so uh dean is buying the tractor off of um some dude who's uh tractor had a gigantic bite out of yeah. it taken out of it and he's like ah there's a there's a bite out of it and he's like yeah that's why i'm selling it there's a bite out of it he's like i'm sorry i can't offer you more but you know there's a giant bite there's out of it out. he's like that's why i'm selling it <laughs> selling it there's a giant bite out of it and the other one is um i i forgot who plays uh the general but his his line after after the missile gets fired he says that missile is tied to the giant's current position that's the giant, Mansley. That's um the John Mahoney is the general who is the uh, dad yeah. in Frasier, which he's such a, his voice is so great. I, I love that delivery. It that is guy. like that. Oh, just all the voice work is just perfect in the movie. They just if you can if you can find a way to get that soundbite in there over my like <laughs> instead of my voice, absolutely do that. I love that delivery of that line it's great i i i had to go back and watch it like five times in a row oh it's so good yeah and this movie's <laughs> not long it's like it's under 90 minutes yeah uh yeah hour 23 and, is what I, yeah what i thought it was or around and i feel like it gives you everything you need from the story and it doesn't feel like it's rushing it either absolutely you just because you get obviously him going through the woods and at night, which is another great thing with the lighting and finding him at the power plant, the scene that terrified me as a child. And he's yeah, like saving, the... saving him from the power station. Then you get, that's, that's probably like the end of the first act, all the setup. Then yeah. it's all the, all the interactions with the giant, him learning yeah. new words, him learning uh, mannerisms, that kind of mannerisms. Right. Kind of he thing. brings him to Dean's and this is the scene where like the railroad when he's like following him. Yeah. Um, is That's also scene. it is a great scene and it's it kind of plays off of like 
things don't necessarily always go exactly the way you think they might go in a movie like this. And it helps no. with the efficiency of the time frame for it being an animated movie, but not in an expected way. Because you get him trying to fix the railroad and being really perfect and exact about it. And, and I love but, how he would absolutely not be not know like what the importance of this right. is. Only that Hogarth is very uh, angry that he messed it up, and so he's putting it back together. But he doesn't. He probably sees the train, but he doesn't compute what whether the train's coming towards him and why the train is there. So yeah, I I do I do love that. Like the shot the shot of uh, him like lining it up, but you can see him right. like facing the train, and he's too focused. Yeah, and on I the love train that track. it's like yeah. definitely the guy's gonna see this giant robot, the guy driving the train, but also the fact that he hits him too yeah. is just kind of this nice like version of the scene because it's you're you're kind of you're tense like oh no he's gonna do it in time you know he's gonna get seen all this stuff and it's like yes all of the stuff that could have gone wrong in that scene go wrong and I love that that is allowed to happen. And it also gives you where the Iron Giant falls apart and kind of reintroduces or it kind of introduces the element of him putting I hadn't I hadn't seen it in a while. I thought the train like I get that the train like gets hit and I think the dude gets yeah, like, he's a bandage around his like head. That. Next time we see him, he's got a bandage on his head. Yeah. But I could have swore that the uh the train derailed when I was a kid. Like it only makes sense that the train would derail after hitting like a gigantic right. metal thing. I, I, think, I guess doesn't not. it? I don't remember. I'm trying to think back, but I don't think it does. I think it. I think it just stops. Well, either way, like it definitely um, wrecks. You know, I could. Yeah. Whether or not it actually it, falls yeah, off it, the track. Yeah, it definitely. It I definitely stops. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. So then, yeah, we get all those scenes that just kind of builds up. Which this movie has a very strong ET influence. I would say. I would even go so far to say that this is. There were a lot of ET clones that kind of came out after ET because. At the time, E.T. became the biggest movie ever for a good stretch of time. Probably, I think, till Titanic, maybe Jurassic Park. But so you get these kind of E.T. style movies. And this one, I think, is the only one of those that I can think of that truly stands up on its own still. Because, you know, you had like Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> and even like a few years ago, you had like a found footage movie called Earth to Echo. And it's like these just straight up E.T. ripoffs. And this one definitely has those same kind of elements. But it takes it and I think it just has such a unique quality to it that it really ends up creating its own version of this kind of story. And so, but you like in E.T., you get these scenes at this point where he's learning to you know he first he has to hide the robot in the house which is really funny because that's where kent mansley shows up for the first time and the hand is just like yeah. loose in the house crawling around and he's trying to hide it and you get the funny bathroom scene where he's yeah. like he's already pushing right up, but he has to pretend I just, to be like using i love that he's pretending to use the bathroom and then he when he knows the door is going to be open he unzips his pants and sits on the toilet as if he's using the bathroom yeah. just quickly to to sell it he's like i don't care if i'm embarrassed right now man that's a method <laughs> i know it's like the embarrassment doesn't matter because i'll get i can sell my lie better if i do this so uh and <laughs> what i find funny is everyone reacts to the the toilet flushing before hogarth right. is there and and neither well Kent obviously uh, puts the pieces together eventually but not then but I like how his mother's just like yep yeah okay toilet flushing whatever <laughs> it's just I feel like it's very chaotic that whole scene is so yeah and 
I mean, if Shooter McGavin was in my living room, yeah. absolutely everything would go to shit. <laughs> so, yeah, then he has to find him a home. So he gets into the scrap heap at Dean's because Dean's an artist who also runs a scrap heap and makes art out of the scrap metal. And since the Iron Giant... Absolutely the most successful beatnik in the 50s, oh, for I sure. swear. Look at that scrapyard. It's huge. It's in the middle of the woods, too. But... Yeah, he can uh, he can he can afford to have a buffet for a giant and just be like, you know what, just don't eat the art. <laughs> right. I don't care. <laughs> and that's you get a lot of just really good warmth and heart in these scenes of him being with the giant. And they're not that many. They're, it's not once again the movie's not very long, but it really conveys the emotion of everything and the connection between them, like really well in such a short period of time and i mean i love the scene where they go swimming too it's when the iron giant goes for the cannonball and dean's reading the, the newspaper yeah. dean, dean just puts the newspaper back it's, up as it's if a that's perfect a cut field. right there because you get like the wide shot of like the water spouting up in the air and then the wave starting to come up and then it cuts right to dean with his newspaper in front of his face and there's just a wave like three times taller than him about to like wash him out yeah, and then another great wave. line delivery of like he gets washed out into yep. the road hey b- hey buddy yeah you're in the yeah. road yeah <laughs> he goes okay <laughs> drives on. all right funny yeah and so yeah you get a really good connection between these characters and then once you introduce the gun subplot then you start to get the conflict with the robot with the iron giant you know his eyes turn red and he gets activated kind of by that and then you obviously have hogarth pretending to shoot the giant and then and all in the meantime you get the military around because kent mansley called the military and all that which yeah and so it's just and it it has this great back to like the 50s kind of sensibility where it has an authenticity there with like in the classroom scene where they're watching the duck and cover video which is which i'm gonna be honest uh that that type of stuff in the 50s did get a bad rep or at least nowadays because it's like duck and cover is that really the best you can do in a nuclear blast and yes yes it is you don't want to be anywhere near a window because when the shockwave hits you want to be on the ground preferably facing away and also nowhere near any kind of glass so that's that's all you can do yeah so i i i totally get that that type of instructional video it is definitely uh hilariously dramatized especially back then as it is now but yeah I, I i can see i can see why you would put out something like well, that. well and i can see why at the time too like even if they knew that most people are still not going to survive that you know if anybody yeah but i can see at the time it's there's so little knowledge still about what was going to happen with all of that there were two examples of it that happened in history on the other side of the planet so yeah two two there are two examples where it was used uh to kill as many people right. as possible so um and there's only so much data you can get out of that especially because it was it was not on a place yeah. where you could measure exactly what was happening obviously we knew about radiation and fallout and that kind of thing which i like um going just to the nuclear blast that does happen in the movie i like how it's it's pretty realistic when it comes to nuclear blasts obviously there's no mushroom cloud because it takes it takes place like on the edge of space and also most of that energy is going to be dissipated depending on how close everyone is to the uh ground zero there's well metaphorical ground zero but 
there's not going to be much radiation that goes down to the ground and there will be no fallout whatsoever because there's no dirt being kicked up. Yeah. So obviously there's not much to worry about depending on how far away they are from the blast. Yeah. yeah. And at and at the same time there's also just the communist kind of scare factor of this too, where Kent's kind of like Which was absolutely a thing, oh, especially in the yeah. 50s. And then Kent's like, I don't care where it's from. It could be from Russia or Canada. It could be from Russia, <laughs> China, Canada, Mars. Yeah, I don't as long care. As it's, it's not here. It's not from yeah. us. It's not from us. Right. That whole I also like the I also like that even now Sputnik is flying overhead. Boop. Boop. Uh, a, He's like the first yeah. satellite in space. The first foreign satellite in space. A satellite in space. <laughs> That, yeah, that was a huge thing back then because, of course, we had the nuclear bomb way before them. We had the first hydrogen bomb before them, even at this time. Right. But they were winning the space race at the time with Sputnik, and that was a huge, like, patriotic point yeah. for for U.S. citizens. It's like, wow, we're losing this now. Yeah, have, how did how did things get so? You wrong? probably haven't watched oh. it because I know you don't have a lot of like streaming services, but the Apple Show. For All Mankind is a wonderful, wonderful show. And it's kind of this alternate history of what if the Russians landed on the moon first. And yeah. it just kind of, and then everything kind of evolves from that with how the space race continued longer than it would have because, you know, like the U.S.'s desire to keep pushing, you know, didn't like go out because of the competition and stuff like that and just kind of reshaping history and as the show goes on and on it gets farther and farther away from our own history and to become its own history and it's a really good show it's really really well thought out and i think that you'd find it really interesting because it goes into the politics it's all about the space race it's like nasa and you start getting private companies getting involved in their own space travels and like space yeah and, uh, like that kind of stuff but like way earlier in history because of the way that things played yeah. out it, i think that you'd really like that show i think it's a really interesting take on uh, that. something i'll plug as well uh public service broadcasting which is a band that mostly deals with real time events has a has an album on the space race and they have their own um melodies and beats to go along with essentially what is like the actual recordings from like a, the Apollo program. And it starts with JFK's uh, Rice University mm. speech. The one we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easier, but because they are hard. It, it starts off with that and then just goes down the list of the things that happened. Start starts with Sputnik, uh, Yuri Gagarin, and that kind of thing goes down. Like the Apollo 1 failure and all the Apollo missions that made it to the moon, which super cool yeah no i'm or not all the apollo missions but like the it hits the highlights um and it's a it's a pretty small album but it's it's very cool to see like music surrounding actual events using the actual events uh as the as the quote-unquote lyrics so it's that's that's something i'll say i mean i love that kind of stuff like it goes into kind of it's also just a good yeah. album. I love I love Star Trek. I love all of these kind of things that evolved around the space race era in the, you know, the late 50s to the 60s and 70s. That whole kind of era is it's always been fascinating to me and so I will eat up anything that comes out kind of dealing with that for sure. Yep, definitely give that a listen. I'll check out uh for all mankind. Yeah, it's a great show. I love it. Yeah, and and kind of going into that like 
you get some of these shots and images that really kind of you know hone back to that kind of era era too not just in the aesthetics and kind of the it, like stuff like that but like literally you get like the shot i i could i could yeah i could give an example yeah. as well you get the ahead. shot where like the iron giant learns to fly towards the end of the movie like when they're on the cliff side and he just launches up and you get the shot of him looking like a rocket going straight up and you have the mom and her car at the edge of a cliff you know looking at that yeah. and her dress is flowing by and as the rocket goes past and that's just one of those perfect just like like it that that image alone it gets me emotional like it is an emotionally charged image which is something that bird really understands with how to craft these sequences and stuff to get the most emotional richness out of limited time and material yeah before there was how to train your dragon it was how to train your giant Ugh, i'm not a fan of those movies which really yeah i don't i'm actually very surprised by that i've only seen the first one but uh i would have i would have thought you would enjoy them yeah i would have thought so too but from the first one i didn't like it as much as everybody else did i think it's fine and then everyone since then i've liked less and less and i've seen all of them so mm. uh oh the example i was going to give is uh so hogarth is uh he's got his helmet he's got his bb gun he attached the flashlight he runs out the door to go see what's up what's up and it it focuses on the uh the comic the red menace so right and and i think that that that's purposeful it's like an unknown and unknown en enemy yeah. type thing yeah, you get a lot of like comic book references in this. There's obviously a very significant one Superman with the Superman comic, and he has this like Atomo giant robot comic, which I like how he tells the giant not to be Atomo, and then immediately role plays as a, as which is Atomo. it's such a kid thing to do. <laughs> it know? is the absolutely kid, a kid. The thing kid to wants do. to be the hero. The kid wants to win, and so he tells the robot to be Atomo so that when they're playing their game, but. Nah, you didn't. You need to be more like Superman. <laughs> okay, now be Atomo. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Iron Giant's like, no, Atomo, and he picks me, up a giant Superman, S yeah. and goes, "Me, Superman," <laughs> which is like, it makes usually these kind of like sh almost shameless plugs because Warner Brothers obviously owns the rights to Superman and stuff would be a little bit of an eye roll for me, but the movie uses it to such emotional effect. I'd and like to think sense. that they. They have all the voice actor. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and and it makes sense for the time period too, with Superman being, you know, these kind of graphic novels and comic books being what they are. It really makes sense for the time period to incorporate that into your story with the character focused around, or with the movie focused around such a young character. It was also during those days uh, very fantastical when it came to comic book heroes, like seeing every week like the new powers or new new fights that they would get into especially because the only thing they had back in those days they didn't have the internet obviously so right. they, all they had was what they saw on television and what they could read in comic books so but uh i like to think that vin diesel and the voice actor for hogarth are just like sitting there in the table read and uh vin diesel just looks at him and go no otamo i'm <laughs> superman <laughs> Yeah, it's just, and then the way that they bring that to the end of the movie, and yep. also the you are who you choose to be, which is first introduced by Dean to him uh, when he's got the scene where he shows up at Dean's place, he's drinking coffee, and Dean's trying to tell him, you know, you you know, get that message across to him, and then he is able to then, in turn, give that message to the Iron Giant at the end of the movie when the Iron Giant's 
you know, effectively about to blow up a town with the military and all of that going on because they're something, shooting at him. Something about the military I noted, which I appreciate is uh, back in those days, especially um, the military was seen as very efficient, even though in reality it was pretty, it was efficient with the technology it had compared to the rest of the world. However, it was pretty inept at times. So I could bring examples of, I assume you know what Broken Arrow means? Um, no, I, I know that the movie Broken Arrow exists. <laughs> yes, and you obviously know what that, what that implies, but uh, Broken Arrow in military terms, especially uh, surrounding nuclear weapons, is quote-unquote an incident surrounding a nuclear weapon. Okay. There's been a couple dozen. Uh, in fact, uh, that includes the time where a, I believe it was a B-52, accidentally nuked North Carolina. Obviously, the detonators didn't go off, so it didn't actually detonate. Um, and But I think something like three out of four detonators did trigger. So we were we were one step from like having an insane amount of fallout uh, cover the entirety of the, uh, the East Coast, especially since the wind goes northeast. So it would have it would have covered all the way from probably Washington, D.C. to Boston. Um, but yeah, there's been a couple dozen of those, including um, a few accidental bombings of like obviously New Mexico, not necessarily Los Alamos, but yeah, New Mexico. But uh, fun fact, we don't know how many times that there have been nuclear incidents in the USSR. So sleep well tonight. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because uh, it it did show in the obviously the military is trying its best against the Iron Giant and it's it's doing so for reasons that they don't understand but are understandable given the circumstances of the things that they know and the things that they don't. But I appreciate how inept it seems, especially when when Mansley gets the entirety of like a what seems like a, a platoon to go over to a scrapyard. Right. And and it's a folly. Well, but and then the general yells at him in that scene. You know how yep. many I, I think he says millions of dollars <laughs> you know we how, spent trying you know to get how us many all out of here? Uncle Sam's dollars yeah. you just used. <laughs> it's like yep. it, yeah, it kind of highlights exactly what you're saying with like efficiency yet ineptitude at the same time. Yeah. As they got them all out there really fast. They just, you know, Oh yeah, and I I was surprised they mobilized multiple battleships <laughs> to go to the coast of Maine. I mean, for but art. <laughs> I, I I get it in the context of a movie like this. Oh yeah, and then also, yeah, yeah just kind of the the with the you know the elevated in a nuclear capable submarine. Right, the, the, the just the atomic uh, fears and the communist yeah. fears all kind of escalating to like this hyper paranoia. It makes sense for this era. Yeah, hyper paranoia really that that basically describes the entirety from the late 40s to right the 80s yeah <laughs> so yeah so you get the scene and he's telling him you know he's trying to calm them down at the end of the movie because they've already launched the rocket because kent mansley is the worst and he like takes the radio even after the general realized that I, yeah. which i love that the general realizes that it's acting in self-defense, and once he knows the kid's not actually dead, and Mansley lied to him, he, before, he's going to call before off the everyone attack. as well because because the only thing that he knows is there's a robot. It it's not ours, and it's killed a kid. That's the that's the thing right. that Kent Mansley has said. So once he figures out that Kent lied to him, obviously that turns everything on its head. 
what else don't I know? So right, yeah. So, but the missile's already been fired because Kent Mansley took the radio over and yelled at them to fire. So they did. Where's the giant Mansley? <laughs> it's like, shouldn't we duck and I cover? Love that delivery. It's like that doesn't work. <laughs> that yeah yeah yeah. It's, yeah, especially at Ground Zero, and right. I have no idea if it's if it's just uh, an atomic bomb like a fizz, uh, fission bomb or if it's a thermonuclear fusion bomb. But, it doesn't uh, go into it. You're probably screwed either, <laughs> either way. way. Given, given how close you are to the robot meters away, yes, you are you are very dead. And he's like, you're going to die today for your like country. Like a good soldier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he goes, screw my country. I want to live. I want to live. <laughs> and then he gets stopped immediately. By the Iron Giant. Him. And the Iron Giant puts his arms on his hips like a Superman pose. Like, uh-uh-uh. Yep. <laughs> but it's, and then you, yeah, you get the whole, he repeats the line, very E.T. of it once again to do the whole. You stay, I go. Yeah, you stay, no I go. No yep. following. Very much like the come stay moment of E.T. And yeah, then he takes off and he blows up and sacrifices himself to save the day. And it's sad until you realize at the end that his pieces are all pulling themselves back together in the Arctic somewhere. So, which I, I like that it gives yeah. like a specific location, even though I don't think it had to. But... <laughs> I mean Iceland. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he would have had to fly far if uh, if he made it all the way across. I mean, the he was like Iceland. Like you said, he was on the edge of space, so who knows how far that that can yeah. get blasted? <laughs> but man, but Iceland. Yeah, I was like, okay. <laughs> I, I believe Greenland, but wow, Iceland. Wow. Either way, maybe Brad Bird fell for it as well and thought Greenland was Iceland and Iceland say? was Greenland. Say maybe they didn't know that much in 1999. <laughs> man but yeah no this is so i mean this is one of this is one of my favorite animated movies and by saying that i am also saying that this is just one of my favorite movies i just i love it and i don't have like a long lasting nostalgia for it it is something that i developed as an adult it's just a really wonderful and i think a really special movie that just kind of really it captures a nostalgic feeling and it but it more so it captures using good filmic techniques, you know, in lighting and in their compositions, just kind of really getting the emotion of what it needed to get across. And I think that I wish that this movie made money in its original release, but I would not doubt it if it has in time over. Oh, trust me. No, you don't, because I know exactly what happens after that. The second it makes a ton of money, it's going to have a sequel. And I promise you that the sequel isn't going to be as good as the Yeah, first. like what I was thinking, like what they... Part of me loves the fact that it didn't make money because of the fact that we didn't get a franchise off of it. Yeah. Which they were they were leaning into at the time. Obviously, it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing like the MCU nowadays, yeah. but they would have made a sequel out of it, and I probably wouldn't have enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about the main movie before we get into scoring? No, I'm good. All right. Well, I, I'm sure we'll talk more about that stuff when it comes to impact. But so we'll de and we'll definitely talk about more things when it comes to scoring anyway. Yeah. So, so let's, let's yeah, let's dive right into scoring. Trudge along. So the yeah. way we do our scoring on this show is the same as we have been doing it. We do points from zero to two, zero being not good, one being good and two being great. We keep it pretty simple and we do that across 10 categories for a total of you know, X out of 20 is going to be the final score for the show. This score is the show's score. We like to analyze just different aspects of films. And so it doesn't necessarily fully reflect our own thoughts unless it happens to, but it is based on our opinions. So 
And even when it happens to, it's just a coincidence. Right. Because we wouldn't use these metrics in our in our regular day to day. Yeah, because I, I really base movies mostly on feel, like how it impacts me. And I base them mostly on writing. <laughs> so speaking of writing, the writing for this movie, that's our first category is writing. Yep. I think that this is a wonderfully written film. Like I said, it feels so naturalistic. Everything just comes across like a, a real living thing, despite the fact that, like I said, it's animation. And this kind of marked a weird pivot in animation, the time period that this came out in, to that more naturalistic kind of feeling from the more cartoony. And I think that this is maybe the best example of it from the time period. So I would have to give writing it too. So um, because this is a children's movie and I can tell, I personally would give this a one. However, I do recognize the fact that I granted a curve on pitch black when it came to actors being little known and that kind of thing what you could get out of it when it comes to children's movies obviously they aren't going to be as complex or as uh, meaningful when it comes to storylines necessarily uh it and more so the opposite it not because it's a uh because it's a children's movie that does not mean it is automatically less complex or less meaningful than a movie written for adults but I would still say that some of the dialogue really doesn't hit as well because it's a children's movie and they kind of had to put it in there because it's of of what it is. But that being said, I will still give it a two. I, know, I just think it gets its themes across extremely well in a way that like it's stuff that you know, but it says things in a way that makes me feel like I just needed to hear it. You know, the way that it, this movie kind right. of puts it out there. And I know you're, you're saying it's a kid's movie, but I do think that this movie has a specific feeling of not I'm, really caring that much about children's sensibilities. What I'm not saying is that as an adult, you can't right. enjoy it or appreciate it. I'm saying it. a lot of the dialogue was written uh, with children in mind. And I think that does hurt a little bit of the dialogue when it comes to I would to also story. say, though, that a lot of the dialogue is not written with children in mind, especially compared to other animated movies at the time. Well, both can be yeah, true. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that both can't be true for sure. But, like, you know, you get some mild language in here. You get a few hells. You get a damn it even. And, you know, you have those kind of things in there to, you know, give it a little bit of – I feel like it gives it a little bit of more authenticity to the – sound of it i think that it's actually kind of interesting because we went through a long period of time where movies kind of completely went away from language like animated films but now with both spider-verse movies and the new tmnt you get a little bit of that back in there again just very mild language and it's kind of i'm, I'm not i'm not talking about language per se right. i'm talking about when it comes to exposition or when it comes to dialogue writing right i didn't mean to like highlight and focus in on the the language but i do want to say that watch your profanity i just want to say that for the sake of like <laughs> i i think that in the writing there's not a specific there's not as much of a specific effort to be sensitive to children's ears you know i do th i hear what you're saying but i i i do kind of what, what i will say as a uh, as a kid i very much uh felt for hogarth and wanting to be a bit of a a bit of a rebel when it came to that type of stuff but no absolutely i uh i cannot stand hogarth because i believe that annie is in the right always because she is just a hard-working uh server at a diner just coming home after long hours just trying to find out that her son is safe and he's out playing with something that is way too dangerous for him absolutely not annie is right Hogarth is a bit of a uh, a bit of a, a spoiled brat in my opinion. 
Now, obviously, that's all sarcasm. Right. But I, I got. It's, yeah. It's a bit. It's a bit like when you grow up and but you watch Tom and Jerry when you were a kid. You were like, man, Jerry's the coolest. Jerry's the right. Jerry's in the right. But then you grow up and it's like Jerry's an he asshole. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so is Bugs Bunny. No, but and so many cartoon characters from that time. But like, oh, I, yeah. I feel like. So I run into this kind of with some. Elmer Fudd's just trying to feed his family, yo. <laughs> I run into this sometimes with animated <laughs> films, especially actually Japanese films that have children in it, because like Miyazaki films and um, and man, some of those movies are not children. Well, and movies, Mamoru though. Hosoda, I think, is pretty. But they are important for anyone to watch. Like Grave, uh, was it Graveyard of the Fireflies or Grave of the Fireflies? Is something everyone should yeah, watch. Yeah, and well, there's also the director Mamoru Hosoda. Uh, he directed this movie Mirai, which is, I think, a wonderful little movie. But I think that the pre presentation of the children is so realistic and so accurate that there are times where I'm like, I hate this kid, you know, <laughs> because the kid yeah. is like an actual kid and he's whiny and stuff. And I feel that a little bit with Hogarth, especially at the beginning of the movie, because of the way that he is. But I also feel like that I don't dock it for that because I feel like it's managing to accurately represent children well i'm not docking it for that i'm docking it for like specific yeah dialogue i see what that you're saying. i don't remember the exact yeah. thing of but yeah I, i'm i'm still not giving it a one because like i said it, i have to be consistent when it comes to the scoring i gave a curve on something else so i i kind of have to give it okay. a curve on so this as well put that as two then yeah keep all right it two. uh world building is our next category yes it is i think and this definitely this yeah this definitely feels like it it's a 50s right. movie uh through and through it it sets the stage for the the red scare the the fear of communism the unknown fear of sci-fi characters especially given the nuclear age we have no idea what radiation has its effects on wildlife or space or what this means for other species that kind of thing also it's just a fear of domestic problems obviously with when it comes to the red scare it's not even communist they kind of pointed fingers at everybody anybody who dissented anybody who was different so and i definitely get that here and there's a lot of paranoia and a lot of um a lot of finger pointing and i see that here i see a military that absolutely feels like it could be in the 50s and the kind of the the home aspect the the mother son thing as well as the diner and the town itself feels very 50s feels very lived in feels like it's been yeah. there for a while so has a real yep. attention to detail i feel yeah, real, it, too. it and really like, is and going into even more like you got like the tv commercials and the old movie and the comic books and all of that stuff it all just feels very authentic very detail oriented mm -hmm. I, yeah definitely too all right, characters is our next section. Yeah. Characters for me, it's another two for me personally. I think that I'm I know you brush up against the Hogarth character, but like I said, I he feels very authentic to me and I like his well, growth. Well, Hog Hogarth in the first half is a bit weird to me. Hogarth in the second half completely yeah, redeems himself. I think himself. that he grows a lot in the movie and that they give him a good arc. He does. The Iron Giant himself is this great childlike behemoth that can kill everybody and he's yep unlike vin Di not unlike vin diesel 
<laughs> uh, but then also, I think that his mother is really well fleshed out. Kent Mansley is a fantastic, just one of my favorite. Kent Mansley. Yeah, one of my favorite oh, antagonists. I even man. love the general. The Dean character is great. I love just kind of the other townspeople. The Dean character's got some really, really good yeah good lines he's just like all of the characters are just well well thought out and they're well you know presented within the context of the film i i think the characters is a two my only hang up and it's not worth not putting a two on it i know double negative but um the the whole like ending scene where he's like where hogarth is wrestling with the rest of his class classmates it's kind of weird that it just goes straight from like apparently he's getting bullied to apparently he's cool now because he's friends with a robot but and i guess obviously it doesn't help uh the story by like going over that even more but i thought it was just real weird to include that at the end um though the the ending of the movie is a little bit clean which is that's where it feels like it's a little bit targeted you know allowing for a younger demographic to appreciate it yeah but and so I, I get what you're saying. I do think, though, like for kids at that age, if one kid is friends with a giant robot and helped save the entire town, including all of your lives, that they would be your friends all of a sudden, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's not yeah. like when you're an adult and you're like, well, that guy may have saved us all, but he's still a jerk. <laughs> you know? When you're a kid, you're like, oh, he's I don't cool. Know. He's I a don't, robot. I friend. don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Kids can absolutely find find ways to pick on somebody for anything. Yeah. So. Um, still a two though. Yeah. It's just kind of weird that they, that it feels like they left out a few things when it came to like Hogarth and his new friends, I'd guess. I don't know. It just feels very out of place. It's just that it's, it's a little bit of a bow tying wrap up for sure. Both with that and the scene of the iron giant reassembling. So I just wanted to bring it up. Yeah. I still like it and I appreciate it. And like Hannah, loves the movie et so do i i am a huge fan of et and but she describes et as a sad movie because the way that that movie ends with them leaving and assuming you know presumably presumably never really seeing each other again is like devastating to her and she cries just thinking about it and i get that it's really like it is sad it's heart-wrenching at the end and this movie kind of avoids that by having that cleaner wrap-up so for that sake i I don't mind that it ends that way although i wouldn't have minded it if it decided to end in a sadder way either but that's kind of beside the point um directing is the next category which this is brad bird's first film that he directed he had done some animation shorts and stuff that were pretty well respected but you know not very seen and he was kind of treated as the golden boy rising up the ranks in disney but then obviously got fired from disney <laughs> apparently in the documentary he actually says that when he was leaving he was like the the final office visit when he was fired. i'll be back and in greater numbers <laughs> no, he said uh <laughs> he said this was and he said he paused because he couldn't think of exactly how to describe it because he's like it wasn't fun so he wasn't going to say this is fun so he paused and apparently one of the execs this is ben <laughs> well apparently one of the execs filled <laughs> it in he said a disappointment and then brad bird oh. brad bird looked back at him and he said yes a disappointment and then left <laughs> so that's kind of the golden boy status that he was in before leaving disney um and so i think that i really think that brad bird is one of 
my favorite directors and I get excited for everything that he does. He has a few upcoming projects and I think that he started off if as a not like as a first feature, I think he managed to make one of the all-time great animated films. <laughs> and I'm like it's just astounding to me and the fact that I've seen his sensibilities continue to be as strong as this, I don't even think he's necessarily gotten better. I think that he's just, you know, continued to be as good as he was at the start which is kind of amazing I'll, to me. I'll, I'll say this i've seen four movies from him um obviously this movie the incredibles ratatouille and the incredibles 2 uh i can't i can't speak many good things about incredibles 2 i'm gonna be honest i really like the so. incredibles 2 it's not as good as the first one in pretty much any capacity but i mean just from i i do still think it's really good specifically after it gets into I think the first 30 minutes kind of drags, but once it gets into Elastigirl going on her mission, I think, I think the last 30 minutes are, is the is, oh, really? is worse. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, his his direction and his sense of pacing and the, his understanding of this kind of graphic style, especially in the whole, once Elastigirl... I'm also purely coming at this from writing. Yeah, when, when uh, Elastigirl goes so on the her writing is very first poor. mission and everything, I think that Incredibles 2 kind of takes off and I end up really enjoying that movie even though I don't think it's as good as the first one in any way but I do still think that Bird's Direction is great and it's it's been it's interesting going back to this one every time after seeing all of his progression and just seeing that he just started off so strong so for that I have to give it a 2 um yeah I I will agree with every every point made for yeah. this we talked about the acting a lot with the different characters in the movie i think that it's just it's extremely well cast and everybody plays their part perfectly um i don't i we i don't know if there's much more to talk about with the acting i just i think it's great no i, I don't think so yeah, i think it would be I think a, a solid two right there the... too <laughs> yeah all right visuals so so if if you want to come at this from not the animation yeah because we have uh, animation you... and visuals as separate categories here animation being our alternate category that switches out each movie depending on the movie and animation will probably be the category given any animated movie that we talk about um for the sake of this to distinguish the visuals from the animation the visuals is just kind of okay i'll use a couple of examples okay so there's this movie that came out recently on netflix called nimona and I, a lot of people were really loving it, so I watched it, and I didn't love it. I think that you could tell its budget a lot, and I think visually the movie is, it looks pretty empty, and it's not as involving as I would have liked, but the animation itself is really good. Like, the actual character motions, the, the actual character animations, everything, all of the action is really well animated, but the movie doesn't look that great, I don't think. I think it has a style that is a little bit limited alternatively you have something like the mario bros movie which came out earlier this year obviously huge hit <laughs> and i think that visually that movie looks beautiful they really captured that kind of mario sensibility illumination has all the resources in the world they're one of the biggest animation studios despite everything that i think about their films that they make that being said the animation itself in that movie is just it's not very impressive to me. I think the movie's animation is just kind of boring in 
despite it has all of the visuals and the clear budgetary power behind it and the way it looks but the animation isn't that special in that movie it looks very kind of cookie cutter so that's kind of where i would separate those things if that makes sense it absolutely does not but uh <laughs> not to me at least <laughs> i i have i have no idea how to distinguish those those two by by how you described um well in this case the, the visuals <laughs> they have great visual representation i love like i said the way that they use lighting in this movie is really first rate and they also so would you count that as visuals or animation lighting specifically i mean that's what i'm trying yeah to <laughs> i mean we might have to rethink this with how we talk about this but <laughs> Even if you wanted to do period piece, that would make sense, but that's more so world building. If you wanted to do, there's some comedic aspects, but I wouldn't call this exactly a comedy. Um, I mean, okay. The visuals within the movie, though, like the actual... You could go with children's movie instead, if you wanted ah, to. Nah, nah, nah. Children's movie. Because I don't <laughs> want to... Nah, I, I'm not, I nah. don't... I, I feel so strongly about animation i would not want to diminish it to that and i wouldn't even classify this as a children's it, we, movie i'm we're, we're not we're not describing every single animated movie as as a children's right. movie um, i don't think that i would describe this one as a children's movie though interesting you know like i think that this movie is appropriate for children but i think that it's pretty universal in its appeal hmm. so i mean i feel like i have an understanding of the difference between the it's visuals not, and the animation an but if you're not having as much of a distinguishing, so would would visuals be like shot composition kind of thing? Yeah, like yeah, talking, like shot composition, like not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily yes. animation, as in like the the actual physical animation of like the robot and the character. Yes, yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna distinguish it that way. Like, how about how about we do character animation and visuals? So if you were to take a shot from this from this movie that's how we distinguish visuals and then like when it comes to animation it's the actual animation going into i see what you're like, saying the characters and the action yeah kind of i thing. think that yeah the that would be the only way that visual, I could visuals are also going to be the more aesthetic qualities i would say of the animation you know whereas <laughs> i'm i'm just seeing big bold italicized aesthetic <laughs> well, like but you know what i'm saying though it's it's the <laughs> yes i know yeah, the aesthetic saying. qualities of the movie versus the actual animation is kind of where i'm distinguishing right. it so that's where it's like Mario okay. Brothers looks pretty, but the actual animation in the movie is boring and isn't that exciting to watch. Okay. I haven't seen that movie, but I've seen the trailers, so I kind of get what you're saying when it comes to that. Yeah. And um, I know you haven't seen Nimona, and the visuals in that movie are pretty flat and kind of bland to me, but the animation I'm hurt. is You good. assume that I haven't seen a new movie. <laughs> it's a Netflix original <laughs> animated movie. You've not watched it. <laughs> Absolutely. I have not seen it. <laughs> But yeah, so in this case, either way, getting into the visuals of this movie, I think that they really understand lighting. They really understand the period with like the way that they bring about all of these different aesthetics and just kind of there's a visual quality to it that kind of harkens back to a different age. And the the way that they made this movie look really works well with that. They also do a thing which this is more actually an yes, they well, do actually do that's more of an animation thing so i'll save that but so 
when it comes to visuals and if we were talking about the the spider-verse movies i would distinguish uh visuals and animation as the the framing on twos and framing on ones that they use in order to distinguish yeah. like the swinging animation kind of thing and when it comes to visuals if you were to pause the movie every single frame in that movie could be like a wallpaper yes. so that's how I. that's would a movie that's it. a like, two how... in both categories for me yeah absolutely both of those and movies. i think that applies to this one for me as well just i guess we'll just i th i i i let's go over both yeah of them we'll just together. go over both of them i agree together. with you i agree with you on on visuals i disagree on animation because of how some of the humans are animated is very poor compared to the rest of the competition i'm putting this in the context of this is 1999 there have been decades of of 2d animation i think the robot animation is stellar i think the human animation well that's something that they do which is interesting in the film that the so obviously this is a period of time when cg started to be incorporated into animation and the way that that's primarily done in this movie is the iron giant himself the robot being a cg yep. model I, again i think is stellar because because obviously toy story uh pioneered yeah. that but i don't think it was a a known commodity when it came to especially sure like who framed roger rabbit had that kind of technology and that yeah. kind of thing but when Toy Story came around, that's when CGI started, and I see that with the giant. It's got a few things. It's a bit like the the tree ints for me in Lord of the Rings. It's very of the time, and you yeah. can tell that. But I don't think that detracts no, from I it. I think the because of the fact that we were still getting yeah. that technology, and I wouldn't detract that for the giant because it's still being developed. I would detract it because the the two D is a little bit, it's a little bit poor in in spots quite a few actually. something that they do though really really smartly with the giant is that they created visual imperfections within the actual lines and stuff within that. the giant to make him blend more into the 2d environments and with the other 2d characters in the world um there's also just something that i think is really tremendous in this movie is and this is going into the actual character animation and the actual thing so you get shots where it's like the Iron Giant picks up Hogarth and he's walking with him and you have Hogarth kind of like he's gets knocked over a bit from the wind and he like grabs the Iron Giant's finger and like pulls himself back up. Little details like that that aren't necessary, but the movie goes out of its way to constantly have these little details that really give you a good sense of scale and weight to it. That's see, that's that's where I, animation. I agree, fans. but there's also there's also shots, and I know I'm contradicting myself with the robot, but there's also shots of him grabbing the uh, the metal from the power plant, which is very very awkward. There's a little. It's an there's a little bit shot. of that, but for me in this movie, it works because I think there's a differentiation. You know what the I I've I've figured out what the um the animation style and the animation reminds me of. Did you ever play um? Uh, ah, what is it called? It, it's like Dragon's Lair and the uh, the space version, which I can't. Oh, like those are go like the, going those little animatic kind of games. The la the laser yeah. disc, yeah, and those are actually animation. done by. It looks exactly like that. It look, that's actually done by Don Bluth too. So those are Don Bluth productions. Correct, but but that was also in the eighties and yeah, the seventies. So. Like, like I said, I don't know if they if they were going for the aesthetic that this was animated in the 70s or in the 80s, 
that makes sense then, but I don't suspect that they were. I think it's just they had not the top tier They didn't. They actually didn't. They had a bunch of first-timers, and they had some people that... Because all of the other, like, the biggest animators and stuff were taken up by Disney. So this is kind of a scrappy team, but I love... And even DreamWorks was I love this kind of scrappy quality that the movie has. It doesn't look as polished as other things, but I think, for me, that adds to its charm. So I know what you're saying with it. Maybe it's not the most polished-looking animation, but I like that more than some of the more polished-looking animation because I think that this movie just captures that really well and like i said there's an intention to detail with like the weight of things like the weight of the giant and the way that characters interact with each other and stuff like that that really kind of stands out to me very significantly the other point that i would uh give and this would be more so impact that i'm watching the trailer right now and it's because of the unpolished and i you might find it charming and to an extent i do as well but that absolutely hurts the marketing and that kind of aspect from, from the It movie. hurts the marketing so maybe, but it doesn't hurt the storytelling. It might be... I'm not talking about the storytelling. I'm talking about the look Right, of it. I know. But I, I never found the look but, of it distracting from the storytelling. I thought the animation that they did for the movie only ever enhanced the storytelling. I never got taken out of it personally. That might just be an agree okay, to disagree. Okay, but we have to agree to disagree on is this a one or a two in animation. Correct. Because I would put it down as a pretty hard two. Man. And like I said, I would do that for visuals. I don't think I would agree for animation. Okay, let's... We'll circle back to it then. (laughs) We'll go to editing. The editing is fantastic. Like I said, there's... It's a very brief movie. It's an hour and 26 minutes. And it feels like it's the exact right amount of time. Everything in the movie... Yeah, the right. pacing is the, really there's good. a good consistency to the way the movie looks throughout that you know that's also important to the editing and it's all just they're great sequences i don't know it's a i feel like editing for me is a, is a really solid two here okay i will agree with that actually okay um sound okay sound is whenever we talk about a movie i don't there's it's Score plus sound mixing. Yeah, plus score, sound, sound mixing, sound editing. what I do. I think that sound is one of the more. It's uh, It's one of the most important things about filmmaking, and it's one of the things that gets messed up when it comes to major theater or yeah, major theatrical distribution style productions. The least amount because, I don't know. I feel like. There are movies that mess up sound stuff, but I think that we give out twos to sound a lot because sound is just such an important aspect of filmmaking, and I think filmmakers understand that, and most of the time movies aren't going to mess this up. I think that in this case, the movie does a great job with... I I suspect I know a good reason why, especially in the film industry. So I happen to know, don't ask me how because I couldn't tell you, but... Uh, Foley artists, of course, you know what those are. Yeah. So even though there is a database when it comes to all these kinds of, uh, Foley sound effects and that kind of thing that have already been done that are very high quality, we still use Foley artists for every single movie and Foley artists have to be in every single movie. Yeah. 
So it's all bespoke, kind of. It's all, it's all very. Yeah, and especially in animation, where everything is completely created from scratch, that's dominated. Like right. all of the sound stuff comes from and, that, and and that's why we keep giving everything too. It's all because they have to pay a certain amount for fully yeah. artists, whereas they could just pay for the licensing for you sounds that really been created that are probably yeah. just as good. People but, really yeah. notice when the sound is off in a movie. And so it's like, that's why people, yep. that's why it's such a big deal with the Christopher Nolan films when those came out that people couldn't hear dialogue. Even in the, across the Spider-Verse, the original release of that, like had some sound issues. Which is why I'm glad that Oppenheimer came out because he, he did really fix that fixed a lot that. in Oppenheimer. Oh man, I could so, actually hear. I could yeah, hear it's more Murphy. noticeable when you have great audio. It's not necessarily that noticeable, but when you have bad audio, it is extremely noticeable. So that's why with audio, it's so, kind of like a lot of movies are going to get a two in that category. But that's because the attention to that needs to be in a way where you don't notice it. And if you're, yeah. So do you think we need to up our up our bar? No, I'm not saying things? that at all. I think that that's just a general case for most movies. If they're done, if the audio is done well, and that's why we also include the score in the audio too, because if a movie has a notably like lackluster score, then that could hurt the audio aspect of it. Well, there there is a, I think, because the score is still in the first half as well as the second half, and there are still uh, 50s music choices in the first half as well yeah. as some of the second half, whereas uh, for Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, it's the first half is all 70s songs, and 60s songs and the second half is right. all just score or nothing at all so i quite like when it's intertwined instead of uh just music and one part and just score in the second part or in the case of suicide squad where it's just songs that are mishmash for for the sake of we bought right. a bunch of songs or we licensed a bunch of songs might as well use it at any time instead of thinking yeah. about it but yeah, I guess I just um, or in the case of or in the case of like Baby Driver, where he wrote action uh, to the music scenes surrounding songs. Yeah. Exactly. I think. Um, yeah, I think that there are movies that use it exceptionally, but I think that most movies are going to be doing sound well. So feels like we should probably raise the bar for that's what that that's what I'm thinking in this case. I mean, I would say that this is very much a two. I think that they really capture, especially with like the differences in the old timey commercials versus the movie's audio and kind of representing the time period and just also the clarity and the quality of the voice acting and everything. I think that this movie is definitely a two. I think that they do a great job. It's also got a really good, I can't, I'm probably going to mess up the exact scene placement, but after Kent Mansley goes to the restroom because obviously he was given laxative yeah. on purpose. Um, it goes immediately into a choice like music uh, before it even cuts over. It, it plays the start of the music, which I find to be very, very good that that choice to immediately start a different tone for another scene before the cut is, is very interesting to me and it hits Um and I will say it's very difficult for me to get choked up, uh, but the the final two scenes regarding the giant and uh, and Hogarth actually kind of did because it's and I think the music is a big part of that because it's it's subtle music it's obviously somber music but it, right. it works so yeah. I'm going to agree completely sound yep. is sound is a two all right so 
impact. impact okay, well, let's just talk about impact because impact to me is the most interesting yeah. category for this movie in particular because yep. this movie didn't make money. It wasn't impactful very much in terms of its you know relevance in the year that it came out because it bombed really bad. And but it did a couple of really key things that has made it extremely lasting. And part of that, I think, is just how good the movie is and having a lasting quality for the people who watch it and then share it. Word of mouth on this movie. Most people know what this movie is. Not everybody's seen it to the same level that, like, let's just use a Tarzan, for example. I feel like more people have probably still seen Tarzan in time than have seen The Iron Giant. But I think The Iron Giant has more of an impact on the people who have seen it than a Tarzan does for most people. And there's a couple of interesting things to kind of reflect this too, where one is that the movie is continually referenced today and not just referenced, but like billion dollar movies like minions parodies, the iron giant in its finale, which I don't like that movie, but it parody it does parody the Iron Giant in its finale. Movies like Ready Player One from Steven Spielberg prominently feature the Iron Giant, right. um, including the new Space Jam also prominently featured the Iron Giant. And in the Warner Brothers Smash Bros. clone game, the Iron Giant is one of the marquee characters that they advertised as one of the playable characters in that game. So I... Yeah, the car- the Cartoon Network Super Multiverses, Smash Bros. I think uh, it's called. Them. Yeah, but they really marketed it like yeah. Iron Giants in this game. Isn't that cool? And it's like, yeah, because the Iron Giants has had this very lasting cultural impact despite the movie. It's kind of funny. It feeds on this nostalgia yeah. for people who do. Yeah, didn't exactly. See it. Exactly. It's a strange kind of phenomenon. I love seeing him pop up in things just because I know that this movie it connects with people. It just does. Something I will say, because it didn't yet, yeah, because it didn't make money, that's probably the reason why Brad Bird eventually went to Pixar. Right. So, it did give us two very, very good animated movies afterwards, too. Not not only did Brad Bird just go to Pixar, he became one of the foundational people at Pixar and made movies right. that went on to make a billion dollars. Incredibles 2 made over a billion dollars at the box office. Incredibles 1 obviously made a ton of money as well, and so did Ratatouille. And, so, and then he went on to make other live action movies and he's got other projects coming he's been a notable presence both as producer for other pixar projects and his own pixar projects and he wouldn't have had those opportunities if he didn't right. make this movie and if this movie wasn't as good as it was because as a financial disaster usually you'd like you might take a hit in your career but brad bird made the incredibles which came out in 2004 which was you know he pretty much went right over to Pixar and started working on that movie, you know? So like, I think that because of its continued pop culture relevance and the influence of launching Brad Bird's career and the kind of career that he's had, despite the fact that I would usually dock a movie for, you know, being a financial failure in the impact category i do think that this movie is extremely influential to animation as a medium i think that animators always point to this movie as being an inspiration and then also industry-wise i think that with brad bird's career and once again the continued relevance of the iron giant character 
I think that this movie is a two-win impact, despite the fact that it was a box office bomb. So I do have one question. So does that mean we would have to give Fast and the Furious a two? Yes. Any of them? I would. Oh, okay, no. maybe not any of them, but the first one. I wouldn't. Tokyo I wouldn't say Drift. that. I, I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> say that for Tokyo Drift, but or or some of the other middle ones, but. You know, I would give one a two, and I would give seven a two, and I'd give five a two. But beyond that, I don't know if I'd give any one of them a two for, you know, that kind of sake. But there are a few in that franchise that I would give a two in Impact, which is where it's like Impact is an interesting category because it doesn't necessarily fully reflect our feelings on the movie. It just reflects. It also also is a mishmash. Typically, we would go with... Did it make money? Did right. it have accolades? Not necessarily pop culture. Because we gave... What did we give we Network, gave Network a two? A two? Yeah, because, we gave it a two. Yeah. Even though it's never talked about at all. It, sure, it made it has money, more interesting, not too much yeah, money, more but it had impact, accolades. You know, and it had a lot of accolades. Yeah. So... So in, that's why impact is very subjective, but that's my personal take on it. If you have a different take on it, feel free to share. I agree with all those points. I just... Because I would say that with all of those things that have happened with the character, both licensing out the character to other things and, you know, sales on, you know, products revolving around the character, I this movie might have, you know, turned a profit, way you know, over time. Because, I mean, Ready Player One was a universal movie. How much did they pay to have the Iron Giant so prominently featured and recreated in that movie? It's just like that movie right. has the Iron Giants probably made money over time, despite its failings at the box office originally. So that's that. Yeah, that's just my opinion on it. So yeah, like I said, if you feel strongly about it differently, just let me know. But I feel like it's a two, personally. The thing is, I don't. But I, because we keep changing what impact means, week after week, it it makes it tough to determine to me what is a two i think it's the most it's the most subjective yes of it's all of them for sure but i i do like analyzing a movie's yeah. impact and place and culture i have no yeah. good reason not to give it a two but mm. it doesn't feel like a two to me all right well then i guess we'll just give it a two and move on <laughs> unless you have an objection which brings us back <laughs> to the animation category which has now become something with more stakes because will this become our second perfect movie in a row and second for the show, or is this Correct. a 19 out of 20? I I consider this to be a perfect movie, and I love the animation. I've made my case for it. And Ooh. yeah, if you if you want to fight me on the animation for one, then have your argument. I mean, I already yeah, kind you of ju- did. You just see it as a bit rougher. I I I find I. It well, it's not just a bit rougher. I mean, I can tell that the animation for for Hogarth and for Dean and for Annie and for Kent's it they feel like four different animators animated them, and it's it's jarring to me. Um. Not not enough for me to not like the movie at all. Even, I I still like the movie. It's it's still weird to me. I'm very not very passionate about this movie because of the fact that I appreciate it, but I. I don't see it as there are, in my opinion, probably 
a dozen better animated movies. Well, if there's only a dozen better animated movies, this is still one of the best animated movies. <laughs> like overall. Overall, I'm not I'm not talking just 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 animation alone. I'm talking overall there are a dozen uh that I can think of off the top of my head. I see head. what you're saying. Yeah. It when it getting too hung up on this because it doesn't really make that much of a difference i'm still i'm still gonna say one if you want to do oh, the flip a coin thing because I, you feel so i'm not gonna because you feel strong i'm not gonna budge on this, this and there, there's not many things for this movie that i feel strongly about not giving it to animation is yeah, probably but, and, the, the biggest I'll, one yeah. either that or impact but impact i can't come up with a good knowing our parameters of impact i have no idea how to argue against a two because our parameters change so often. Yeah, I mean it's really a movie to movie kind of thing. So, but the yeah, the animation, I'll yep. give you the one because first of all, you said there was this like it felt like it was you know amateur animators, and it was, and it was kind of a B team of animators kind of coming together to do this, and and normally normally I would I would give them a pass, uh, but not for seventy million dollars. Um, All right, so then yeah. it just misses out on our first, I mean, our second perfect score I'd, being a nineteen out of twenty. I mean, nine point I mean, five is way better than incredible. Most and like I said, it, though, I, I'm gonna fight for this movie till the day I die because I I love this movie. This one's it's very special to me. So yeah, definitely one of my personal favorites. So I'm happy to see it get rated so high, but. Yeah, I understand what you're saying about it. I I can I can hear. The <laughs> I wanted it, I wanted it to be twenty out of twenty, but I I understand what you're saying, and I'll give it to you. <laughs> well, you sh you should have picked something other than animation because if I'm if I'm differentiating visuals and animation, then I have to I have to argue my case that it's not perfect when it comes right. To I guess it comes down to what do you see as perfect? So you know, like, is it technical perfection or is it? You know, I feel like there's an emotional weight to the animation and the way that they choose to do it that is better yeah. than other things that are. I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing perfection for most things. Sometimes I argue perfection for writing, um, and characters. But when it comes to animation, it's way more subjective. And also, I'm put, I'm pinning it up against the animation for okay. its uh, contemporaries, saying. which, which is Pixar and DreamWorks yeah. and uh, Disney. No, no. So, I I I I checked it's your good, points. That's why I gave in I, your one. So I, I understand what you're saying. I'm just I'm just I'm just <laughs> I'm just making it so that I mean I'm, I'm not disappointed and you are the okay? reason, but <laughs> <laughs> I can't be that disappointed okay, when stank. it's one point Jeez. off of perfect on a score that is between two of us <laughs> on, on a, a casual on a score, casual that, we, score <laughs> right? that we made up on the spot. We made up in that, this over the yeah, span that we of also said minutes. wasn't Calm you know down. reflective of either of our necessarily opinions. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. There's there are some problems that I had with network when it came to some of the uh, some of the things, but it's right. Well, that's why so we don't go to three because kind. three is so, like absolutely perfect. You know, we're not rating it. Yeah, it's just good or great. Yeah. So, <sighs> which man, man, the Fast and the Furious movies, thirty out of thirty. <laughs> hey, if we did man. Fast and Furious. Hey, 30 out of 20 sorry furious, 30 out of 20 and 
it got a two for impact, I still yeah. don't think oh. it would get a very high score. <laughs> no, absolutely. That'd probably yeah, be the so, only like, two. You know, it, I think it all kind of it balances out in its own weird way. <laughs> but yeah, that'll do it for this week's conversation around the Iron Giant. If you agree or disagree, we got a little bit tense there with our scoring at the end, but that's part of the fun of the show. So <laughs> um, I don't know what our next week's movie is. That's what our next week's movie is. I don't know what next week's movie is. That's Kyle's decision. So he, yep, Kyle knows. I do. So Kyle, what is next week's movie? So you'd be proud of me i actually watched more especially newer movies than i have in a while i probably watched seven movies over the last week oh wow um nice i i gave some thought originally i was going to do the father which the anthony Hopkins. oh movie yeah I, I did i saw that that movie originally i was going to do that but yeah. man i cannot I it's cannot. a hard one to watch again especially my grandma had yeah my grandma had alzheimer's so like that was a rough watch for me yeah but we we've been on a we've been on a hot streak of of good writing and good movies. I mean, um, this movie network, uh, Margaret, Untouchables, Pitch Black. I know they're all good. Um, so I wanted to focus on something that neither of us have seen. I doubt you have okay. seen this one. I would be impressed if you have seen this movie. Um, it's by what I would consider a one hit wonder director. Because it's his okay. only feature film that he directed. He got an uncredited uh, direction, uh, well, credit, uncredited, in a different movie. Um, it is The Night of the Hunter. It's 1955. Oh, I wanted to watch this, but I didn't. The Like, a few months ago, I almost watched it. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, so this works out. I have heard a lot about this movie. Oddly enough, even though it, it feels like uh, a very niche movie, but I wanted to go with something that neither of us have seen that people consider great. And it's a older movie. I was originally going to go with the father. I was actually originally going to go. So obviously I started with in Bruges and uh, and Network. Those are actually two of my top five favorite movies. I was actually just going to complete the top five while we're still a young podcast. Oh, but yeah. I realized that probably best to save some of those for later because opinions change and that kind of thing. And my top five can shift, even though it hasn't in a long while. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Night of the so, Hunter, 1955. Yep. That's the, definitely the most classic movie that we've done so far. So yeah, I'm excited. I, like I said, I almost watched this like a few weeks back, so I'm glad that you picked yep. it. Yeah, so that'll do it for this week's episode of Great American Movie Review. We'll see you back next Thursday for The Night of the Hunter. Thank you for joining us this week for The Great American Movie Review. Be sure to join us back here every Thursday for new episodes.